Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Pfizer has just announced there will be no shipments of their vaccine for the week of January 25th. Where does that leave distribution? Stats Canada says Canadians are leaving major cities in droves, and that was before the global pandemic. And what is in store for tomorrow's U.S. inauguration? Are they safe? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son, enjoying my COVID-19 lunch. You may ask, what is a COVID-19 lunch? A COVID-19 lunch is eating anything you want while inside your closet. Alone, of course. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Enjoy that lunch. What we do when we have lunch here at uh, at the Scott Thompson Home Show, I, I know like we're there's the four of us here in the family and such, but we we still we we believe so much in the protocol that when we make lunch, we put it in a little styrofoam containers and we take it up to the kids' room, and then we just knock on the door and run. They open the door, they take the styrofoam box, they go into their closet, they eat their lunch, finish with it, close the little styrofoam thing, put it outside the door, we'll come get it later. Is that over? Is that overly cautious? Is that a little too extreme? <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, good afternoon. It is sort of. It is 12:11. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will Erskine back at the station, back from vacation, is in the best mood of anybody in the building right now. Uh, <laughs> hope you had a good one, Will. Uh, welcome back. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Facebook and Twitter. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, let's move on and talk about what's important to us right here, and that is uh, COVID-19 and where we are with vaccinations and, stu- and such. Let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, thank you. So, your thoughts, uh, Thomas, on uh, the information that we're getting out in the last uh, 24, 48 hours that there will be a production slowdown in the uh, at the uh, vaccination Pfizer vaccination uh, facility in Belgium. As a result, it will delay uh, at least uh, for the you know the next few weeks, next couple of weeks, uh, vaccinations coming into Canada, and uh, obviously that has to slow down. A distribution in some form. Your thoughts on where we are in in, in moving through this glitch? Yeah, yeah, def- definitely. There's there's a lot of moving parts to you know this distribution and uh, you know, getting getting you know the vaccines in people's arms. And I I thought I think it's interesting that you know when when uh, you know a few months ago when when you know we were all thinking oh once the vaccines developed and you know and, and approved. You know, basically, it'll just be distributed, and we'll all we'll all get a vaccine. And you know, and what we're seeing is that it's it's uh, not as easy as that. It's you know, there's a lot more moving parts. And so, so I think you know, when I think about the you know the, the sort of the key areas for for getting you know people vaccinated, you know, the first thing is is eligibility and who's going who's going to get it. The next part is the supply and having adequate supply. The third part is Distributing it and having the, the appropriate distribution networks. The third, the fourth part is administration, as in 
the locations and staffing to actually, you know, you know, be there to administer the vaccines. And then the and the the uh, fifth part is is follow up because with with these vaccines that you know they require a second dose, and so so uh, you really have to make sure that you're you know following up and making sure that people get their second dose on time. Otherwise, you know it you know it. It, it undermines the effectiveness of the process. So, so you know, it just means that each of those, you know, five elements all have to work together seamlessly if if we want to have the the mass uh, distribution and and vaccination that that we that we really we really need. And so, so you know, having a supply chain issue, you know, sure that's going to you know be one part of it, but but maybe you know if there's a slowdown in that you know maybe they can you know fix up or, or address some of the other you know pieces of the of the uh, whole process you know while they're while they're waiting but but definitely you know having that you know sort of issues with supply is is not going to help uh, we've certainly seen that since the holiday over the last, uh, you know, two and a half, three weeks now, the distribution has seemed to have been ironed out. I mean, here uh, in Ontario, in uh, in Toronto, they're talking about uh, opening up the or the mass site at, at the convention center and such. It seems to be now there's just not enough supply into the pipeline. Uh, they're talking about 20% less in the next uh, shipment, uh, weekly shipment, and then 80% reduction in the one after that obviously with these supply chain systems uh it it has to be much like a garden hose the supply has to be consistent in order for it to keep working how much does this reduction in supply throw a a stick into the into the spokes of that wheel oh no yeah definitely you know like we you know these sort of systems uh you know it's sort of you know, they don't have sort of bulk supplies ready to go, and then once you you know place an order, you just get them. They're they're sort of it's that sort of right on time sort of processing, and so it means that once there's a delay in the in the processing, then then there's a delay in in supply and delay so the delay in distribution. So so definitely uh, you know that's going to uh, really really slow down the you know the 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 uh, distribution and and uh, administration of the vaccines, but but I'd, I'd hope that uh, that in the process, you know, despite that, you know, having making sure that the, the all those elements of the system are are as effective as possible, really can mean that you know hopefully you know some uh, drops in supply can sort of be iron, ironed out a little bit by making sure that, you know, you're following up with people who need their second dose and, and that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, the Prime Minister, during his uh, news conference this morning, was asked about why it appears that, uh, you know, initially this was presented that uh, Pfizer is shutting down some lines in order to ramp up production. We, we all know that that takes time to do, of course. Uh, but then the shipments to Europe would uh, resume within a week or so. However, the shipments for Canada have been delayed by 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 more than a couple of weeks after that. Uh, any thoughts as to why the European shipments will continue before the Canadian shipments do? Mm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I I don't I wouldn't know. I you know I'd have to speculate on that. I, you know, my sense is that you know the the sort of distribution system is is easier. You know, maybe easier to sort of ramp up more quickly, you know, there and and you know, and, and it also gets down to you know the characteristics of the of the vaccine itself and and uh, you know what sort of 
what we call cold chain requirements there are, you know, in regard to the, you know, really, you know, once once you're talking vaccines that really require very, very low temperatures, then, then that also, uh, you know, makes the distribution uh, aspect, uh, more, you know, more complicated. Obviously, we're talking about uh, the prime minister has talked about the portfolio of vaccines and 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 how much will come in uh, once it does all get approved. Still hoping to hit the uh, September vaccination rate for those that want it in the country. Where where does the Moderna supply fit into all of this? Uh, with the shortage in Pfizer, is there any way to call up Moderna and say, "Can you torque it up another notch?" Or is is this obviously yeah. just oversimplifying everything? Well, well, yeah, like, like definitely, you know, because of the different, you know, characteristics uh, and of of the vaccines, uh, you know, they they can play a different role in in the in the distribution, and uh, you know, like I think with the Moderna one, it, its temperature requirements aren't as uh, as stringent, but you know, yeah. it's, and so it means that it can be distributed to you know maybe locations that don't have the same same infrastructure that that you might need for the Pfizer one you know so so really that means that you know if, if it's possible can you you know can you ramp up the uh, you know the moderna supply and then you know you know I understand with uh, I think a one vaccine from Johnson and Johnson you know that's sort of in the pipeline too for, for approval and and it's it's requiring only I think it only requires one dose versus two so so I think that that spectrum of of op- options means that then once you you know when once you understand you know know who who needs it where they're like lo- you know where the people are located uh, you know and you know and, and so you know that that spectrum of of vaccines gives you a better better way of getting getting more vaccines out to you know to people and so so I think uh, you know at the moment we you know we the you know people at high risk such as people in in aged care facilities. You know, I think we really need to uh, be looking at trying to get them vaccinated as soon as possible, uh, and and as well as making sure the uh, you know first responders, uh, you know, nursing and, and medical medical staff are are getting their vaccinations as well. But but I think you know uh, once you know outside of those groups, you know the the broader range of uh, vaccines and you know potentially available means that. Uh, I think the you know we'll have much more options to be able to more widely distribute the uh, the vaccine and get it get it uh, you know meet that uh, target of of trying to get uh, people you know the bulk of the population vac- vaccinated by by September. So, in other words, the Moderna vaccine is in, in as short supply as the Pfizer is. Well, yeah, like I, like my sense is that you know we're you know once once it's started, uh, now everyone wants it. You know, everyone. You know, yeah. every country in the world wants it, and so, so do that. Do you know that that's obviously going to put a uh, put a put a break on things. But 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 I suppose it also depends on you know what the uh, contractual arrangements are, and you know how many doses have been ordered, and uh, you know and, and and that sort of thing. And so so I think there's you know there's there's always uh, there's lots of moving parts in that that uh, scenario. You talked about approval of other drugs. I believe uh, Johnson and Johnson. They're talking about late February, March for approval on that. Any more on approval of the other vaccines? Uh, I, I haven't heard. I haven't heard of that. I haven't heard of what's what's happening for for others. But uh, you know, I think the uh, you know Health Canada 
their, their process, they, they have it, uh, you know, they, they've indicated that they've got a more streamlined uh, and quicker approval process. But, uh, and so, so I think, you know, once, once the, once the uh, vaccines are, are sort of ready and, and, and with, the, with the regulators for approval, you know, it, it won't be too, too long before they're, before they're ready to go. What do you, uh, how do you see the next few weeks, the next, well, let's say the first quarter till, till uh, the end of March? What, what, what is life going to be like for us? Uh, well, you know, def- I think, you know, for the, for the you know, general public, it's, it's uh, you know, more of the same and, and potentially, you know, uh, more, more restrictions. Uh, you know, if, if the, uh, you know, depending on, you know, how we're tracking with, with cases, uh, you know, we you know, even if we even if we uh, have have a bit of a dip, you know, we're still running at, at you know very high numbers of cases, and so so I think you know my sense is that there's you know more restrictions on the way in regard to you know businesses that are operating. I think people uh, have to you know sort of you know community community members have to be uh, thinking of, you know more about uh, you know uh, sort of masks, you know wearing masks, you know in any time they're outside, in, you know, you know, maybe people haven't worn them when they're walking down the street or, or whatever. But I think, you know, any time you're in public now, you know, masks are, 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 you know, absolutely needed, and you know, you know, and maybe people have to think about, you know, uh, you know, face, uh, face shields, you know, the plastic face shields as well as an additional measure. But but uh, you know, and so, so, but I think there's a you know a broad range of things that. Uh, People have to sort of think about in regard to uh, you know where we're at now is is it's like it, we're in a situation where where I don't think things are going to ease up for any time soon. It, it, you know, if, hmm. if anything, they'll be uh, you know sort of ramping up in, in regard to more restrictions and and more requirements on uh, on sort of uh, the measures that are going to be implemented. What about um, travel in and out of this country? Because, again, here in Ontario, we're told to stay at home. Everybody has to stay at home. Uh, yet, you know, we're aware others are still flying all around the world, uh, you know, whether it's down to the sunny south or Florida or whether it's overseas. Uh, Canadians are still flying. And, I mean, again, Ontarians are being asked to stay at home while the Huawei CFO brings her family in from China and, and avoids all the all the protocol and such. Uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, should we be shutting down travel, like air travel? We've closed the borders, uh, the land border between Canada and the United States. But, you know, there's people uh, from border towns that are saying the helicopters are flying in and out, bringing people in so they can then fly out of the states or yeah. get their vehicles there or what have you. So yeah. how can you ask people to stay at home when people are still flying around? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree that that's a, you know, you, you sort of have to question, you know, why why there's the sort of seemingly, you know, freer flow of, uh, you know, air travel versus versus other, you know, cross-border uh, travel and and you know even you know if we look at the uh, you know from the reports from Australia where the you know they're trying to you know uh, tennis players for the the Australian Open you know on, yeah. on a chartered flight and you know and now they're you know you know you know got COVID and you know even in the quarantine and you know if if you can't control it on a chartered flight for 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 those guys you know people have to be uh, you know, realistic that you know it's it's not controllable, you know, under under normal you know under normal circumstances. So so definitely, 
you know, I, you know, I, you know, I have to encourage people not to, uh, not to be flying at this time. Hmm. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Thomas, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. All right. There's lots of things that we've talked about since this uh, whole thing started. Now the uh, the issues vaccination, uh, vaccinations, and when we can get enough of the vaccine to do a mass blowout rollout of this thing. And and prior to that, it was always testing. We don't have enough testing. Testing, 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 testing. Before that, it was PPE. We didn't have enough of that. Uh, and but getting back to testing, it, it's it's been an ongoing situation. Many have asked why we haven't been testing testing more, uh, going in and out of airports. There's been some pilot projects there, uh, but nothing of really any substance. The same thing with in and out of schools. Uh, so let's get uh, an update on where the heck we are and why Canada has so uh, been so slow on rapid testing. Let's bring in Dr. Lisa Barrett, Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases at Dalhousie University, and with us now. Lisa, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, thanks for having me on. Yes. So why has, Can- <laughs> why has Canada been so slow to jump onto rapid testing? Uh, it seems that it's been an issue since the beginning of this pandemic. Why, why has Canada been so slow to jump on? Well, I think there's a, it's, it's a multifactorial kind of thing. Um, you have to ask the right question with the right test. Um, every test has its strengths and its weaknesses. And one of the strengths of rapid tests is, well, as you might have guessed, that they're rapid mm-hmm. and people can get results in not just is the test rapid to do, but they get the results in a very timely manner. Some of the tests aren't quite as sensitive. Uh, some of them may not be as specific as our gold standard test that happens in a lab. And so you have to know what the question is that you're asking, and you have to be able to develop models for the right people to perform the tests and give people their results. So all of that requires thinking about tests, not necessarily just as diagnostic tests, but also as tools of engagement. And uh, that takes a lot of different thinking than the way we usually think about tests here in Canada. So I think the long and the short of it is, You had to know the right question. You had to do it the right way in the right place at the right time with models that didn't already exist. So uh, as a result, uh, and adding to what you just said, is is that the reason why some feel these are not accurate? Is accuracy, how big is accuracy an issue here? Right. So if I want to, if, if, if I have no other options except rapid testing for multiple reasons, maybe I don't have enough people in the right place, maybe I don't have enough lab equipment, um, then doing some testing will pick up more people than doing no testing will. So if those are your options, then sometimes rapid testing is a good option. If you're um, looking at testing people who have a low risk of being positive, like people without symptoms, exposures, or contacts, and no travel, then your likelihood of picking up um a positive is low, but if you pick up any, that's a whole lot better than none, particularly when you can spread the virus without symptoms. So I think people have seen the test limitations as a reason to not use them at all, as opposed to thinking of them as being used in the right place at the right time. And um, that's a long history in Canada. We, we have a way of medicalizing 
tests, particularly point-of-care tests that can be used in the community by people who aren't uh, medical experts um, to engage community and for community to have some control over knowing the results of their tests. So, um, yeah, I think I think we've been a little bit um, a little bit too uh, protective over these tests, and uh, now's a really good time to think about different ways to use them. Uh, so obviously, this has resulted in with rapid testing in inconsistency of testing. Can that inconsistency be more of a disadvantage than an advantage? In other words, uh, you know, if they're not completely accurate, it, it's better just to stay with what we have as opposed to trying to introduce more uh, question into all of this. Um, it depends on the question you're asking, and so let me let me give you a couple of examples. If you were looking to test people in a situation where there was a high risk that they were going to be positive and you needed to not miss any positives, then you might want to use a gold standard test. If you didn't have access to that gold standard test for whatever reason and you needed to get to people quickly and it was better to do a lot of tests and pick up almost all the people rather than none, then using a test that may miss a few people is Hmm. perfectly reasonable. So different tests for different applications. Different tests for different questions and applications. If you're going to go into a setting where there's almost no cases and your risk of finding a false positive, which, by the way, is not just a characteristic of rapid tests. That's a characteristic of any diagnostic test. You run the risk of having a false positive um, or false negatives. That's the risk of any test. Um, if you're going to use a rapid test where there's a slightly higher risk of false positives in a very, very low um, case number situation, and that false positive can't be resolved quickly with a gold standard test, and it means that many people would have to stay at home, maybe in a congregate living situation like long-term care or something, then maybe it's not the best test to use um, in that situation. However, there are lots of great places to use rapid tests, and they can be used very effectively and well. So, for example, testing in schools is different from testing in a, in a senior home or a long-term care home. Yeah. So, in a school, if your answer is going to be, we're going to shut the whole school down for every positive that we find on a rapid test, and we know that there's going to, you know, in a situation where there's very little virus in the community and school, your chance of getting a false positive is pretty high with any test, to be honest. And so if you're going to get false positives and then shut down a whole school for a false positive, then you might want to think about using a different type of test in that situation. So do you think this will be more confusing? Do you think this will be more confusing, doctor, to those simply because people just don't understand where one test is being used and another one isn't and why a false positive is looked at differently with one test than the other? Would this make it more confusing? Well, I think COVID-19 has been pretty confusing because everything is new. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if we're going to go with that uh, strategy and rationale, you wouldn't do much ever. Yeah. So I think that your real question and, and, and a really good question is, how do we make sure that as the indications for different types of tests start to come about, that we add some clarity for people and give them good resources for knowing what to do next? In, in other words, that. get the right. In other words, get the right test to the right person. Yep, and and choice is going to become a thing. Um, you know, you're going to maybe end up clicking on something on your your government website. We do that in Nova Scotia. We offer rapid tests 
as well as um, regular gold standard tests for people without symptoms. Because right now in our province, we use it as a tool to of added protection. And uh, we have multiple options, rapid tests, not rapid tests, all for asymptomatic purposes, as well as symptomatic purposes. And you go to the website, you click in and you say, do you have symptoms or not? Yes or no. And it takes you to the right place for the right test at the right time. So you just need to give people some really good tools, as well as get feedback from the public on what they need. And you know what? People are pretty smart. Well, why is Nova Scotia leading us on this? Why why is Nova Scotia doing well? Other provinces not in the same headspace. Oh well, we've we've had um, we've had a lot of things happen here that are useful. I mean, sure, it's a smaller space. Sure, we have some geographic reasons why um, we might have done okay, but we didn't have to. Um, Nova Scotians have been really great at buying in, and there's been a conscious effort. To help them buy in, we've had very consistent and early leadership with Dr. Strang in public health and our Premier, uh, Premier McNeil. They've been pretty good about uh, listening to the science and staying with science and then not being afraid to innovate around things exactly like rapid testing and asymptomatic testing at the right time. So I think, uh, and, and travel, to be honest, um, we've had our uh, quarantine, 14-day yeah. quarantine, and it's helped us. Yeah, many here in Ontario are questioning why we're being asked to stay at home while planes are flying in and out all the time, but that's another that's another topic. So is Nova Scotia like the leader in embracing rapid testing? Oh, um, I think there are lots of places now that are running some pilots. Uh, certainly we were one of the first groups to do it, and in particular I think we're probably one of the few groups to have not used our health human resources to do this. We've uh, We've trained volunteers to run these clinics that are not clinics, they're testing events in the community. Um, So we don't actually take up the health resources dedicated to other things during COVID-19 to run these. uh, We we recognize and know that peers and community members, it's important to get them engaged and involved and, uh, and they can actually do this work. We train people to do these tests and the swabs in about 40 minutes. Um, depending on if they're 16 or a 60-year-old retired person, they all do a great job of learning to do this very quickly. So we've uh, we've been innovating in that way and using it as a tool of community engagement as part of the COVID response, which I think has helped us a lot along the way. We certainly all know of the Atlantic bubble and and, and how uh, the Atlantic provinces have, have handled this uh, right from the beginning. Um, can this type of strategy work in the more populated provinces, the more uh, diverse provinces, like in Ontario, Quebec, even maybe even a BC? Yeah, I, I I cannot imagine why. It's about timing, though. We didn't start to do a lot of asymptomatic testing until we had our case numbers down a fair bit. Uh, but there are certainly regions of each of these provinces where the case numbers are low. Adding yeah. an extra layer of protection in with asymptomatic testing would be great. Mm-hmm. And everyone always tells me that things are harder in bigger places. But you know what? My experience has been that big places are a series of little communities and they just need to be engaged and you can do anything. That's um, a valid volunteers, point. Volunteers are a very, very sustainable sustainable, reliable resource in this effort, and uh, everybody wants to help right now. 
Are you surprised that the federal government isn't doing more to push this out so we get some more consistency? We know that this is all provincial uh, jurisdiction and such, but something that has to be approved by uh, by Health Canada, They were wait- we were waiting for rapid testing, but now it's there. Should there be more emphasis on the federal government to push this stuff out and use it and maybe put some guidelines in? Sure. And I think um, the challenge, I think that's a great idea. And I think they should be supporting efforts that come up and helping to get that information around to other provinces, which, in fact, they are doing through different, um, you know, knowledge exchange events and the like with, through federal means. So that's great. Um, the one thing I will say is that the right way to do this is probably different. There's some commonalities, but there are, yeah. there are different ways to do this right in different areas. But I, I hope that people in the community um, are eager to start thinking this is something that we should be asking for. And that's often a very powerful force as well. So hopefully people will get the idea that they don't have to be a medical expert to do this kind of rapid test or even the swab. And uh, you can get it out pretty fast. We've done uh, over 13,500 tests in a very short period of time. And, you know, with complete volunteers one afternoon we did 1100 students and and community members just with volunteers in a short period of time everyone had their test by the evening so this is very scalable very very scalable you just got to let people be engaged dr lisa barrett with us associate professor of infectious diseases at dalhousie university nova scotia uh, embracing rapid testing uh the rest not so much so Uh, doctor thanks so much for the time and insight much appreciated be well Thank you. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pfizer's global supply issues are not ideal, but that's why we were so ambitious in the large numbers of contracts we signed and doses we secured. Remember, this situation with the Pfizer delay is temporary. Our vaccination objectives for the first quarter of the year are not changing. The total number of doses committed to us is still the same with every Canadian who wants to get vaccinated able to get vaccinated by September. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at his news conference earlier on today saying everything is the same, uh, which would ask you then why is there concern over shortage of supply and why are four of the provinces altering uh, their distribution of vaccines and slowing them down? Uh, again, the Prime Minister talking about uh, the abundance of vaccines that will come in later on, uh, but again, not really saying much about what we can do in order to get through January, February uh, and March. Uh, so that is where we are. Anyway, uh, we, we've certainly talked about all aspects of COVID-19 and how it has affected uh, society, how it will continue to, and how life will change going out the other side. And we remember at the beginning of all of this, uh, well, maybe halfway, we started chatting about uh, people wanting to find space, people wanting to get out. Now, as far as uh, leaving major cities, this is probably happening before the pandemic as people search for affordable homes. But uh, Stats Canada reporting that Canada's biggest cities are experiencing a record-breaking loss of people as urbanites move to smaller bedroom communities in search of more affordable housing. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Sebastian Lavoie, a demography analyst for Stats Canada, and is with us now. Sebastian, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, yes. Uh, thanks for having me. So before we start and get into the, the nuts and bolts of all of this, was this a trend that was happening prior to COVID-19 or is this a result of COVID-19? 
This is, uh, this is a trend that was happening prior to COVID-19, definitely, um, especially when we look at the larger, or like the Canada's largest urban centers, such as the GTA, like Toronto, the GTA, Montreal, or even Vancouver. So they've been seeing for a while now more people um, moving, live there, moving out to other regions of the province than people who say live in the outskirts moving uh, moving in. So that's quite common for these large areas. But what is different this year is is the scale or like this this intensifying trend of this kind of movement. And as you mentioned, this intensifying uh, of movement is is happening regardless of COVID nineteen. I can imagine COVID nineteen perhaps speeding it up. Uh, yes, it's definitely uh, definitely quite possible. One of the reasons why we think COVID-19 might have uh, kind of helped is, and the data we released last week only kind of covers the period until July 1st of 2020, so only really catching kind of the first phase, the first wave of the pandemic. But uh, if you look at other data sets like real estate markets, things like that in areas that surround either Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, we're in the middle of a pandemic, people losing jobs and whatnot, but these real estate markets are quite strong, right? There's definitely high demand for um, for this, which maybe we wouldn't have expected that, right? Um, hmm. So uh, how big, how much of a concern is this? Uh, you're saying, you know, record numbers. Uh, give us an idea how bad this is or, or, or concerned you are about it. Um, so we don't go into uh, a judgment call. I have to say, in, mm-hmm. in overall, overall, uh, all of these areas, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, they are still growing. So overall, the population is not declining. What we're seeing mm-hmm. is this increase of this one portion of the population com- kind of change that's increasing. So for places like uh, Greater Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. Uh, the reason they're still growing is mainly is still mainly immigration that still stays true. This year, this was lowered a little bit because, again, in March when the travel restrictions were imposed, uh, migration uh, international migration went down uh, by quite a lot in, in Canada, which impacted those regions more. Now, the thing is, we're not sure. We can't tell you um, with this kind of study whether or not it will continue to intensify, right, uh, or not. That's mm-hmm. something that really remains to be seen. So uh, it's not nece- it's not it's not necessarily the case, or it isn't the case where these cities are they're still growing. Their their population is still increasing every year, but there's a more and more uh, that are actually leaving and going to smaller centers. Yes, and something that might be uh, specifically interesting, uh, let's say for the region of Hamilton, is even for Hamilton as kind of an urban area with a few cities surrounding it. Even then, immigration is about 50-60% of the growth, and most of the rest is coming from uh, the main source is Toronto, people moving from Toronto to Hamilton. But also what's even more interesting, I think personally, is that uh, the majority of of these people are between the 25-45 years old range. And a lot of the, uh, there's also a lot of children, uh, mm. zero to 17. So we, from this, we can kind of deduce that these are mostly uh, young families who are um, looking for maybe a market where they can afford, uh, afford a house. So could it be, or do you have stats on that, you know, you say immigration is still the largest uh, reason for increase in an area. 
Um, do we have information that, you know, those immigrants would come into the city, a city like Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver, they would stay there for maybe a year or two, and then they would leave? Um, Are you seeing more of that? That's my information. Like, I don't have a specific answer to this, although with the upcoming uh, census that's uh, happening in May, around May next year, uh, this year, sorry, um, that's something that that would study more in detail. And that's definitely something that uh, Immigration Canada is looking into is figuring out, like, how long are they actually staying? Because, like you said, most of them end up in the three big centers originally, but we're not sure exactly if they stick around for a while mm. or a lot of them move. But hopefully some more information is going to come uh, in the following months or years. Are, are the numbers coming in and the growth of these cities still outpacing those that are leaving? And uh, is there concern that that would change? Uh, that's a very good question. So, again, we can't track, specifically for immigrants, we can't track whether or not they're leaving those cities. Um, outside of the pandemic and the years that led to it, the biggest urban centers, they, they were seeing some very like healthy growth. Um, so at this point, there would need to be a very, very big change that occurred over a long period of time for it to be uh, really causing like, a decrease in population, right? Do you expect anything to change once we get out of the pandemic, whenever that is? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, the, the one trend we know that is still true is that Canada is getting more and more uh, urbanized. So that has not really changed. Even this year, more and more Canadians live in, in urban areas or in rural. So just over 7 in 10 Canadians uh, at this point. All the biggest cities are growing um, you know, they're growing quite fast. But what we're seeing is not only uh, people leaving urban areas like Toronto to go to like, any other regions of the, the greater Golden Horseshoe, but also people are moving in inside of these areas. So usually the fastest growing municipalities inside of greater Toronto, they're not downtown. They're not in the core. They're always right. kind of on the outskirts, right? So there is that movement internally and also externally to these regions. So and what will governments, what, were, what will governments and policymakers use this information for? Uh, at this point, uh, this is kind of up to them. So we're, we're producing this because all levels of government obviously are interested in, kind of in, in, uh, in this kind of information. We don't produce it uh, as a request from a specific level of, of government. Um, but you could imagine that like those annual estimates, they help them uh, pinpoint where there's additional growth or maybe there's going to be additional requirement for infrastructure, schools, uh, these kind of things. It's unclear whether the main thing is that it's unclear whether what we're seeing because of the pandemic or potentially because of the pandemic is going gonna, is gonna to last. So they might need a bit more time and more information to figure that out. Sebastian Lavoie has been with us, demography analyst for Stats Canada. Canadians leaving big cities in record in record numbers, but those cities still continuing to grow as more come in. Sebastian, thanks so much for the time. Uh, much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good one. You too. Uh, Toronto lost about 50,000 people over the course of the 12 month. Well, Oshawa saw its population grow by 2%. The fastest population growth in the country Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo in Ontario and Halifax were tied for the second fastest growth at uh, 2%. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We certified the people's choice for their 46th president. Tomorrow, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris will be sworn in. And that is Mitch McConnell, I guess, accepting uh, Joe Biden's uh, election results. Uh, here's hoping that the rest of the Republican Party does that uh, as well. Here we are one day out of inauguration, and uh, Washington looks like a fortress. Let's bring in Paul Violas, law enforcement and security analyst uh, for CBS News and author of Safeguarding America, and is with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. You as well. Uh, obviously, we see shots of Washington now. It, it looks like a, a, a fortress. Uh, my guess is it's probably the safest place on the planet tomorrow. But what happens about the days and such after the inauguration? Uh, if some people are in town, are you concerned they might stay? You know what, Scott? That's probably the most poignant question of all. And, and, and the fact is that uh, the FBI is by far uh, the most meticulous uh, of all law enforcement agencies in the United States. I mean, uh, with respect to garnering information, vetting information, validating information. So when they come out as they have and been as forthright as they have relative to their concern about violent protests and attacks on the Capitol, rest assured that, that that's a legitimate threat. So the, the means that were taken uh, and the collaborative effort with state and local and, and federal uh, law enforcement as well as military were needed uh, for the Capitol. The biggest question, though, is what happens after it. And, and, and the biggest thing that we really need to be concerned about in the United States is the fact that this isn't going away. This is not the end story. January 6th wasn't, wasn't a one-off. We are clearly in the genesis of this, and this is going to have to play out. We really don't know what it's going to look like, and unfortunately, that's a fact. What about other capitals? Obviously, there's been demonstrations planned for other capital cities. Uh, thoughts there? You know, the, the same thing. I mean, you've got what we've had, and we've been looking at this now from the intelligence community for like the last three years solid. Uh, it's, it's accelerated considerably since the early part of 2019. But in the United States, we have just over 6,000 identified hate groups. Uh, and I'm not talking about a couple of guys that want to write nasty things on a poster. I mean, these are legitimate, well-organized groups. There's over 6,000. And, and, and they've, as I said, accelerated considerably since 2019. And the information, the intelligence that law enforcement has gathered is clearly showing that uh, all state capitals are targeted, major cities are targeted, and, and these groups, um, believe it or not, are extremely well-organized and, and well-trained, and, and they've established communication circles that are challenging law enforcement at this point. So um, every state capital is on alert. Major cities are on alert. Uh, once we're finished with the inauguration, rest assured that law enforcement in the United States is going to stay in a highly vigilant state for an extended period of time until uh, such time comes that these threats can be mitigated or at least reduced. The fact that Donald Trump will not be attending the inauguration, does that make things more secure or less secure? Um, no. Uh, go ahead. Believe it or not, Scott, he's, he's not as much of a, <laughs> an influence as the media wants him to be. He really isn't. Um, I, I know he, he puts himself out there, and I know that he's, he's said a lot, of th- a lot of things that have drawn attention to himself in a negative way. But at the end of the day, this transcends that. It, 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 it far exceeds him. This is an established group of people that are just completely dissatisfied and, and borderline on the hatred side towards the administration that's coming in, towards the direction the United States is taking on multiple fronts, and they feel they can do it better. That in of itself 
is the real concern. It's not Donald Trump. It's not where he's going to be. It's not what he says. We're, we're far past that. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, as we've mentioned, not going to inauguration and will have his own exit, wanting his own ceremony or some sort of send-off. What about security there? That will be significant. Yeah, there, there's, there's no question about that. But remember, too, uh, when you still, when you're, and look at what's going on in the United States and the parallel would be, you know, you have the RCMP in Canada and the RCMP will work with provinces and they, and they collaborate constantly. It's the same thing here. So now as the president, as President Trump leaves office and, and President-elect Biden gets sworn in tomorrow, uh, there will be a changing of the guard. It's not going to be the traditional changing of the guard. You know, I mean, the United States prides itself on having a constitution for a peaceful turnover of the guard. I don't know that it's going to be peaceful. Uh, I don't know that it's going going to be amenable, um, but it's going to happen, and there will be a significant amount of security there. But the focus, the focus will be on different groups. Uh, it won't be on the right side; it'll be on the left side. So they'll be looking more at Antifa and BLM uh, as they would uh, as they are now looking on the right side for the inauguration. Yeah, it seems. Um... When some are talking about extremes, they make it political and say left and right. And this is really about extremes on both sides, isn't it? Yes, sir. You're absolutely right, Scott. And, and you know, I just wish more people had that wisdom that you show, because um, this isn't about right side and left side of the aisle. We have passed that. You know, if it was that simple, I would say, you know, with confidence, uh, I'm sure we could fix this. I'm not sure we can fix this. And I'm a glass half full guy, but hmm. I've been serving the, you know, the country for 40 years. I've never seen anything like this in my life. So, no, this isn't right and left side. This is hate versus hate, and hate begets violence, and it's surrounded by ignorance, and unfortunately, uh, we have more than our share right now in this country. Yeah, and I think the the, the president uh, uh, draws the attention of, of both sides of the spectrum when it comes to uh, extremists. What is your biggest concern as you head into the inauguration tomorrow? Elected officials, uh, their bombastic and loquacious demeanor is the thing that is the lightning rod for violence in this country. Um, it's not just one person. It, 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 if it was one person, it would be simple, Scott. It is not one person. My concern is the rhetoric that comes out of the mouths of our elected officials. Unfortunately, the preponderance of our elected officials are more concerned with keeping their job than doing their job. And, and, and in light of that, they are drawing a lightning rod to violence. And that is my biggest concern. They don't know how to shut their mouths and do their job. And from someone who has protected this country for 40 years, that is the thing that draws disdain from me. I don't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat, an Independent. I don't care who you are. We're American, and we need to really be focused on that, and we're not. And it's the rhetoric that comes out of their mouths that's going to beget violence. That's my biggest concern. Paul, you have to you have to ask yourself if they are concerned about their own security as being a leader, because we've certainly seen from what happened on Capitol Hill. I mean, people were threatening to hang Mike Pence. So uh, how can they not be concerned for their own safety? I, I believe that they are. But I also believe, Scott, that some of them are just they're consumed and enfolded with such a magnanimous ego that the thought of them actually being hurt. You know, it really escapes that ego. And, and that is the ugly truth behind that. But they're legitimate concerns. They should have legitimate concerns and legitimate fears because what we see right now, uh, as I said, this is the genesis. This is not the conclusion. 
uh, obviously with the COVID-19 pandemic, it would have been a completely different inauguration anyway. Does this help the fact that, you know, everybody will be staying away for the most part? Well, you know, I mean, it's still going to be well attended, though, Scott. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the inauguration of a president, sitting president of the United States. I mean, it's going to be well attended. There will be foreign dignitaries. There will be all the pomp and circumstance that that comes with this particular type of special event. So even though it wouldn't have the volume of attendees, it will still be well attended. There's, There's no question about that. What do you think we're going to be talking about the day after inauguration? I think we're going to be looking at what what different groups have done and attempted to do in other states. I think there's going to be a limited amount of of aggression in the state capitol. There'll be some, but I think it's really going to be diverted to, to other states. And unfortunately, uh, as we are exceptionally good uh, at wake-up calls in this country, I mean, we're, we're world-class at wake-up calls, but the only thing we're better at is sticking our heads in the sand. And I think we'll stick our heads in the sand and it won't be too long after that that you and I are going to be having a similar chat talking about why we didn't pay attention to the warning signs after the inauguration. Uh, you talked about the problem not going away after the election and we've only got less than a minute left. Um, that being said, once the president is off the podium, are, do you think he still will have that command of those people? Yes, unequivocally. I mean, there's over 75, closer to 100 million people that follow uh, President Trump, and they're not going away. So this issue is not going away. And when you look at the various things such as defunding the police and, and what they're going to do with COVID and all the other things that it's the perfect storm, Scott, uh, let's say, you know what, to be continued. Yeah, really. Perfect storm. Uh, Pi- uh, Paul Violas has been with his law enforcement and security analyst for CBS News Radio and author of Safeguarding America. Paul, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. You as well. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. Every single day, I'd be up that guy's yin-yang so far with a firecracker, he wouldn't know what hit him.